morning and good coffee, everybody. Hey, it's time for some morning coffee with Larry, and I am glad that you are here joining with me today for a nice hot cup of joe, and that's actually what I'm drinking today. This morning felt like it. I needed coffee, so I got some 100% Colombian, and mm, that is good. That is good stuff. <laughs> well, it is, <clears throat> pardon me. Tuesday, the 9th of June, 2020, and uh, we are looking at an 80% of a light shower today, so that won't be too bad, as long as it's a light shower and not like, you know, one of those three-day goose drowners that's out there, but uh, yeah, that'll be good for some of the things that we have planted, giving them some some much-needed moisture as they start their life. We were just um, doing a little bit more planting last night, we had picked up, um, on Sunday, a new persimmon tree. We had, for as long as I've been alive, there's always been a persimmon tree at the farm. And the old one died and there was another one, one of its, uh, uh, a little upshoot came up, but it was in a bad location and it didn't live too long. We did get some persimmons from it for a while, but picked up one and uh, down at Rural King. And so it uh, hopefully it's going to do well. It's the variety. It's going to take a few years before it starts producing, but I'm tickled and excited about that. So we got that planted. Uh, I don't know. How many of you ever eat persimmons? I know one thing. Don't pick it off the tree and eat it. You will never forget it, and you'll probably never try it again. Uh, you have to really, after they drop on the ground and they look like, oh, that doesn't look good, that's when they're at their best. And, oh, it's one of the sweetest things. Uh, I remember one year my dad made some persimmon wine. And, oh, it was sweet. It was it was a very delicate light wine. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Dad had a lot of fun in his retirement with a hobby of making wine. And, uh, and we still have a lot of bottles of his wine. You know, he made the wine, you know, greater quantities than what he did with drinking. And, uh, yeah, it's a lot of it is vinegary now. So, um, uh, yeah, I need to start opening up some, seeing if it's worth drinking or not. And if not, is there another purpose for it? But that was a fun hobby he did. I don't know if I'll ever get into it. Uh, It takes a lot of time. You kind of have to be retired and have your act together in order to have the time to to do that. But he enjoyed doing those creative things. Goodness. My throat is a little irritated or something. Well, today we're going to continue on with um, what is post-traumatic stress disorder. And again, I'm using the DSM-5 criteria for this. And we, just as a quick recap, uh, we talked about on the first day in this series uh, what a trauma is and um, and what would not necessarily be a trauma, but could also have many of the same symptoms. Then we looked at intrusions, which are memories and reactions. Uh, dreams related to the trauma that we don't want to think about, but it pushes its way in. Then we looked at avoidance as a method that is used to try to not experience the intrusions, which 
has its own uh, large set of problems. Then we looked at negativity uh, that develops uh, very naturally and problematically whenever we are in, uh, in essence, kind of isolation regarding the trauma. We don't talk about it. We don't want to think about it. We're trying to make sense out of it still, and we gravitate towards negativity. <clears throat> this leads us to the fifth criteria, criteria E, which has to do with arousal. And arousal being kind of hyper alertness, but we're going to get into those specific symptoms. Now, criteria E says, and again, this is therapist language, and uh, I speak fluent therapist. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll explain it because uh, it's not the language of normal people. Marked alterations in arousal and reactivity associated with the traumatic events beginning or worsening after the traumatic events occurred as evidenced by two or more of the following. So again, whenever we use the term marked, uh, that means it's significant. It's something that you take notice to. Um, the, the easiest way I always think about it is if it's if I am making notice something as being marked in something like that, it's like I would make a mark. I'd take a pencil and I'd mark down, write down that this is happening because it's significant. I want to take notice of it. And then alterations is simply changes. So we're having some significant changes in arousal and how we react to it. And it's associated with the trauma. So we have changes taking place, significant changes in our level of arousal and how we react. And it either begins with the trauma or if it was there before, it has been worsened since the trauma. And you have to have two or more of the following six items. So the first one of these items is irritable behavior and angry outburst with little or no provocation, typically expressed as verbal or physical aggression towards people or objects. So we have irritability. <clears throat> we have anger outburst. We have things that, you know, it's like the, the person is just almost like they're locked and loaded, ready to... Uh, you know, uh, have an anger outburst. Now, why is that? Why would a person have that? Well, one is that's kind of a defense mechanism that ties in with your heightened state of arousal. You see, when you go through a trauma, that's life-threatening. And you go, what you're, what's happening is you... Um, trying to think of the words. It's not that early. I should be able to pull the words out. Um, you're on high alert. This is something that could have killed you or it killed somebody else or could have seriously harmed you or taken over you. And you don't want that to happen again. So your fight or flight response kicks in. Now, that's a normal, natural process that we want to have our fight or flight kick in. That's a sympathetic nervous system. We have an adrenaline release that gives our muscles the ability to fight or flee in ways that we normally could not do. There's not a problem with that. We want that when we are experiencing a traumatic event. The problem is 
the trauma either was long lasting and that state of heightened arousal got stuck in the on position, or our memories, the intrusions are vivid enough and strong enough that just the thought will activate our arousal. And so now <clears throat> we're, it's getting stuck because we're watching reruns in our head. So when things get stuck in that way, now all of a sudden this, this arousal is, is there, this heightened state of arousal gets stuck on. So coming back to the irritable behavior, as we are trying to figure out and make sense out of it, and if we have strong negativity, that negativity can be reflected in this irritability. Also, you know, again, I was starting to mention, I got sidetracked, the uh, uh, anger and irritability can be a good defense. You see, if you're an angry person or an irritable person, then People are less likely to want to have conversation with you, to want to be around you, so they're less likely to unintentionally trigger, you know, an intrusion or uh, a trigger reaction, things like that. You know, I, there's several people that come to mind who uh, to, that I've worked with in therapy where they're they, you know, it, they were hard to get close to. They had such a thick wall of protection. And that wall of protection was ranging from grumpiness to explosive anger. And with most of them, I'm able to earn their trust and they will let they will keep that back. But most of the people in their lives, it it they they stayed away from them because of that. But what that did was that provided them with that buffer. That provided them with what they were perceiving as a sense of safety. But it causes problems. Let's move on to number two, reckless or self-destructive behavior. Um, sometimes that reckless behavior is almost like a trying to cheat death. Other times, it's just high-risk stuff in order to try to feel different emotions. Sometimes it's trying, especially like with, with my war vets, it's, they, they have developed a sense of numbness. So they use reckless or self-destructive behavior as a way of trying to kick in um, a dopamine release. They may be doing it for an adrenaline release that is different from an adrenaline release where uh, it's kind of like um, if adrenaline hits you when you don't want it, it can be frightening. It can lead to the panic attack uh, interpretation. However, if there's an adrenaline release and it's something you were wanting, like riding a motorcycle real fast or doing a uh, roller coaster or something like that, then it's planned, and it doesn't have the same sense of panic, even though it's both adrenaline being released. But you, you can see a lot of this kind of reckless, self-destructive behavior. Sometimes that self-destructive part comes in as a punishment. 
kind of like tying in with survivor's guilt. It's a punishment for making it out alive when others didn't. There can be various different reasons. These are just some of them that I've heard. Number three is hypervigilance. This I see a lot of, a lot of. <clears throat> this is where there is a perceived threat uh, in almost any situation. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean there is a threat. It just means that it's perceived. Uh, if somebody, oh, for example, uh, there was one fellow years ago that I worked with. And um, if somebody was looking too long in his direction, he saw it as a challenge and a threat, and he'd go over and pick a fight. That person may have been looking at somebody behind them in a crowd, or they may have been, you know, at a bar and just in that, you know, thousand mile drunk stare, not really looking at anything, just inside their own head. And, you know, he would take that as being some sort of a threat. Uh, hypervigilance can, um, depending, usually the hypervigilance ties into some degree with the specifics of the trauma. So, for example, a person who, let's say, they were attacked, assaulted, or raped in a dark parking lot. Well, their hypervigilance may be low if they are at work and you know they're surrounded by coworkers and friends, or if they're at home and you know they're they're just around family. But if they are in settings that are similar, and this is where the hippocampus comes in. Uh, structure in the brain that's tied in with it, uh, they may go into more of a hypervigilance, being very tuned in and aware of anything that seems even remotely abnormal. I've had several veterans that when they come into my office for the first one or two or three times, they walk in and uh, they, they will ask me to go in first because they don't want anybody behind them. As they come in, they check behind the door, they glance under my desk, they look around, they're checking everywhere for something that, in, in most of those cases, you know, would be like an IED, some sort of an explosive device. Uh, one fellow I talked with uh, in more detail about what he was doing, because he was really looking at my bookshelf, where I have just odds and in, whatnots, not really any books. And he was looking that over and he said part of what he had to do was go into um, uh, in Iraq, go into kind of like stores or grocery stores, different kinds of uh, places where there have been explosions and what people would, what the enemy would do would take like a box of something, put in a small bomb device, not designed to kill, but when somebody picked it up, it would, you know, blow off their hand. And so that's what he did. He was, for his deployment, he would go into these places and look at and examine to make sure there weren't any others. And uh, so that becomes a, a big hypervigilance. Going into restaurants or in crowded situations is also a very common one. Um, 
lot of folks with PTSD do not want to sit at a table. They want a booth. They want their back up against the wall. They want to be able to view everybody in the restaurant. They want to be able to see at least two exits. And many times they're very distracted from conversation at the dinner table or with even what the waitress is saying because they're very hypervigilant and aware of what's going on. Again, it ties into in what ways did a person experience the trauma. Number four, exaggerated startle response. You know, everybody gets startled from time to time. But an exaggerated startle response is that, you know, you, you walk into a room and you just quietly say something and the person just jumps out of their skin. That's an exaggerated startle response. It's more than just startled. Everybody gets startled. This is a much more extreme reaction. And most of the people who have the ex exaggerated startle response also report that they have had an adrenaline release when that happens. Um, you know, it may be, you know, sitting in a chair in that kind of extreme reaction, or it could be like at the workplace, there's a loud bang, you know, somebody drops a pallet and it slaps on the concrete, um, some sort of an unexpected loud sound, and they may, they may hit the dirt. I remember one person telling me that he had not been out of a war zone very long and he was trying to get reintegrated with his friends and was at a pool hall there was a car that backfired outside and the next thing he knows everybody's looking at him and laughing because he was underneath the pool table they all thought it was funny but for him he had this exaggerated startle response that had the action of you know hitting the hitting the dirt taking uh, taking cover uh, because it it uh, was so strongly tied to traumatic experiences that he had. Number five, problems with concentration. This is a uh, uh, one that <laughs> I feel like I'm having today. Um, difficulty concentrating, difficulty maintaining focus. Your focus is pulled and drawn to other things, often tied in with hypervigilance. But it's the trying to keep your your brain focused is harder during this during uh, a person's time with the active symptoms of PTSD. Uh, Maybe it's doing math. Maybe it is keeping a list of numbers going in their head, you know, like a phone number or something. Maybe it is uh, the ability to, you know, if you're telling a story or something, to stay focused on it. So problems with concentration, that can be a very common issue that they struggle with. And the last one, number six, is extremely um, common. And that is sleep disturbances. Having some level of insomnia, either difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep, or they're having restless sleep. Um, this can also tie in with if they have frequent nightmares where they wake up, you know, sweaty, their heart is racing, basically they're having a reaction. Uh, sympathetic nervous system reaction, the fight or flight during their sleep, and then they wake up from it. Um, yeah, the and a lot of times it depends. Some people, they can sleep during the day fine, 
it's just nighttime. And that may be because traumatic experiences occurred at night. Um, or they wake up and the, the intrusions are there automatically, you know, and so then they're stuck with those thoughts and either it takes them a while to fall back asleep or they can't fall back asleep. Um, there's different programs that are out there to try to help with insomnia. Um, the one that's we use in the VA a lot and is, is becoming more popular, I guess, out in the the rest of, of the therapy world is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. It's a time-limited, usually about six-session therapy. Um, works really well, except <laughs> if you have severe PTSD, and that seems to be the cause of the insomnia, then it's not nowhere near as effective. Uh, but those are the different things for the arousal, uh, irritability and anger outburst, reckless or self-destructive behavior, hypervigilance, exaggerated startle response, problems with concentration, and sleep disturbances. And you have to have at least two of those where it's causing problems uh, to a significant degree. You can have more, but that would meet the criteria for PTSD with that. So, um, those are the, that's the, the nuts and bolts. That is the core for PTSD. There's a little bit more uh, as far as criteria, but really it's, that's, that's more for just those making the diagnosis or kind of splitting hairs with certain subtypes, but the intrusions, the avoidance, the negativity and the arousal uh, as a result of going through a trauma is what PTSD is all about. Uh, you do not have to be in the military or have had been in the military to, to have PTSD. It can happen from a variety of things, from auto accidents to rape or assault to being in a house fire, to being in an earthquake, or other kinds of natural disasters. Um, you know, we have a variety of riots that have been taking place over the past, you know, couple of weeks. And if you lived in an area where that was happening, or if you were a business owner, very likely you may be showing some severe anxiety symptoms. Now, if somebody is having the anxiety symptoms and it's within the first four weeks after the trauma, we do not call that post-traumatic stress disorder. We actually call that acute stress disorder. Acute meaning recent and, and right there kind of in your face. Um, and we will, if a person meets very, very similar criteria, uh, then we give them a diagnosis of acute stress disorder. And to me, this is a very critical time. Most people will never get this diagnosis because they don't get help till way after the trauma has occurred, weeks, months, years, or even decades after the trauma occurred. Uh, when I was there at, uh, or there at the VA a few years ago, I was working with three World War II vets all of them were in their 90s, and this was their first time getting help for the PTSD they developed in World War II. 
So don't wait that long. Actually, if you go through a trauma, get hooked up with a therapist who knows what they're doing with PTSD and acute stress disorder trauma work, that they've got experience with it, and try to get to them the same day, within 24 hours of that trauma. The reason is there are things that they can likely do that can help reduce the chances of you developing PTSD, you know, uh, to help you start talking about it, to process it, to identify if there's any inaccurate beliefs that you're developing, to give you some tools to deal with the hyperarousal, uh, the, uh, the alertness there, and counter negativity that may be starting to develop. If you can nip this in the bud, like Barney Fife says, nip it in the bud, then there's a good chance you will not develop PTSD. Those first four weeks are critical. After four weeks, if you then meet the criteria, then we call it PTSD. But those first four weeks is acute stress disorder. So maybe you know, you're sitting here going, well, crap, I missed the boat on that. Well, I'm sorry. You can still get help with the PTSD. If it is where you're Maybe you've got a friend and they, they're telling you something just happened. Then be a friend to that friend and get them hooked up with somebody who knows what they're doing with PTSD and acute stress disorder so that you can help them nip it in the bud by getting them the help they need. All right, that's going to wrap up our little series on PTSD. I hope this has been helpful. I've gotten a couple of uh, private messages uh, thanking me for this topic, and I hope it uh, is something that you can use either personally with a family member, friend, or someone. So that's it for today. I hope you have a great one. Make the most of it. We'll catch you tomorrow morning. Bye-bye.